So I made the, made these smoothies and I'm given out 30 of them and I, I need to go back and get the rest. And I'd left my keys inside the house. I could see through the kitchen window. Okay. Those were all the products on the side. So kind of needs must and a, a traffic cone went through the window. <laughs> <laughs> Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. Success in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. In this episode, we go deep into the revolution that's sweeping the world, that of the oat milk revolution. Founded in 2006 by Tom Mercer from a stall in Waterloo East, and now over a decade on, Mama Foods has recently won a great taste award for its oat milk barista edition, which I can vouch for is the only oat milk I have ever found that actually froths. Tom, whose market research strategy was nothing short of ingenious, discovered four years after Mama's founding in 2010 that he had MS and incidentally lost his vision in one of his eyes. This, however, didn't stop Tom from growing a multi-million pound business and kicking on. So from humble beginnings, on a market stall in East London, is Tom the Lord Sugar of the oat world? Mama, which stands for making oats more awesome, I asked Tom why he went from the world of dairy into the world of oat. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Tom Mercer. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on your podcast. So you're a University of Cambridge graduate. To use a food analogy, you're a, you're a smart cookie. You studied um, management studies at uni. Why did you go into the oat milk world? Ah, the oat milk world. So I was, after uni, I came to London and I was working as a management consultant. And I always wanted to do my own business, always thought I would do my own business. And I thought there was a gap in the breakfast market for a healthy filling breakfast. But it was really driven by always wanting to be an entrepreneur and set my own business up. So in terms of your background, your family, your your dad essentially is the chairman of, of Mercer Farming. You're obviously Tom Mercer, so it runs in the family. You're a director there as well. I'm assuming this is a family farm. Yeah, no, family farm. So we're kind of uh, fourth generation family farmers now. Um, so there's, uh, there was granddad, dad, and then uh, and great granddad. And um, my brothers are both at home farming. Uh, so they farm day to day. Uh, they do pigs and chickens and arable and all sorts of different stuff. Um, so I'm the, the black sheep of the family, really. I came down to London, um, uh, drawn by the bright, bright lights of the big city. Um, and But I still am very much involved in the farm. I'm a director of the farm business. We have kind of quarterly meetings and so on, but I'm not kind of day-to-day active in running the business. So why didn't you follow suit? Why didn't you jump into the family farm and, and, and kind of assist with the, with the pig farming element? I suppose when I was at uni, I was really excited about coming down to London and, uh, and getting involved in, in city life. I was a little bit more academic than my brothers. Um, so kind of got went to Cambridge and then, you know, that does open up a... A lot of uh, open up a lot of 
opportunities for me and kind of went down to London rather than kind of going back to the farm. You know, I've always been interested in farming, but I never thought I would be a farmer. So, I mean, going back to your time at University of Cambridge, what did you learn whilst reading management studies that set you up for for the business that you're currently in? And who did you meet whilst at uni? I did biology for my first two years at uni, which was great, but um, I wasn't into it enough to kind of, I thought it was was really hard work and I wasn't into (laughs) it. wasn't into it enough to kind of really make a success of it. And I changed course in my third year and did management studies, which was just a one year course. It's kind of basic sort of management skills. It was kind of like almost like a mini MBA. Um, But it was really, I love the people that I met on the course. Um, They're really active, entrepreneurial, go-getting bunch of people. Our exams finished early in the summer term as well. So it meant we had most of the summer term to just relax and enjoy the summer term, which was brilliant. Yeah. When you told your dad that you wanted to go and play with oats and barley and such like, what did he say? Because obviously all of his sons have gone into the hardcore world of pig farming and you've gone to essentially mince up carrots in a food blender. Uh, he, he was really supportive. He's, he's unlike a lot of farmers, actually, he's, he's quite progressive and um, or very progressive and has, has never, ever pushed me into farming. Uh, it's a lot of people in the farming world. It's always assumed that they'll get, end up going back to the farm. They don't really have a choice in it um, or are never encouraged to kind of think outside of that world. Um, so, yeah, uh, dad was always very encouraging of, of whatever I wanted to do. And I remember him down in the first couple of weeks. Uh, that we launched the business he came down to our railway archer half two in the morning making products then came to stalls helped sell them all that sort of stuff he's been an advisor to the business as kind of like a non-exec director for the last um yeah 12 years or so and he's, he's been really helpful actually i love the story of how you started when you went to tesco's you bought the water bottles you wrapped them up with your own label sticking them on with prit stick and then going and doing the market research the next day handing them out uh, in east london and asking for a business card in return it's ingenious how did you come up with that as market research so when I decided I wanted to set up my own business, um, I thought there's a gap in the breakfast market. And I, th- I used to blend oat-based smoothies and drink them on the way to work, walking over Waterloo Bridge every day. And I thought, actually, you know what, there's a, there's a business in this. There isn't really any healthy, filling, on-the-go breakfast out there. The way I went about it, I did my desktop research first. So I sent out um, a SurveyMonkey email to about 200 people asking them what their breakfast eating habits were. Um, and it came back with, you know, what people ate, what was important to them at breakfast time and what was important was something that was healthy, filling uh, and quick and convenient. Um, so healthy, filling and fast was my mantra in terms of what I wanted to create. So I thought, OK, this is the, I suppose, the academic or the research rationale for it. And I need to actually um, test it on the marketplace. Um, and that test you're referring to, I went down to New Covent Garden Market, bought a load of uh, fruit uh, got some oats from the supermarket, as you say, bought the water bottles from Tesco, um, took them back, took the labels off, printed off new labels at Bain, where I worked, um, and Pritt stick them on the bottles, and then spent all night chopping fruit, blending with oats and yogurts and apple juice, um, and creating oat smoothies. This was in my, my living room in Waterloo. My poor flatmate um, he didn't get much sleep that, that night. There was a, a blender whirring away below. <laughs> and every now and again, you get the smell of smoke as kind of another blender burnt out. <laughs> so I made, the, made these smoothies and, um, and then went out onto the street in Waterloo. And the aim was to kind of give them out to people, take their business cards and then email them a survey about what they thought. Uh, and I'd given out about, I've given out 30 of these products. Um, this was under a bridge in Waterloo on people's, which is a real thoroughfare from Waterloo Station up to Blackfriars. Um, and I'd given out 30 of them and I, I need to go back and get the rest. Um, so I walked over to my house, which was just around the corner. 
and I'd left my keys inside the house. It was one of those doors that locks automatically. <laughs> and I could, yeah. I could see through the kitchen window. Those were all the products on the side that I'd spent all night making. So kind of needs must. And a, a traffic cone went through the window. <laughs> I managed to break in and kind of rescue all the other oat smoothies and give them out to people. Incidentally, my landlord was, was very kind and uh, they put it down to wear and tear. Is that right? <laughs> was the, uh, well, the smoothies that you, you, you created, you don't necessarily do smoothies as much anymore. What's the reasoning for that? Because you're famous very much so recently for, for, the, um, for the oat milk that you guys produce. There's massive competition in the market. I have to say a big advocate of of the mama oat milk it actually does froth in a cappuccino which is a lot more to say than others do why did you pivot from smoothies into porridges into oat milk oh we've we've pivoted loads over the years and i suppose this is one of the big stories about our journey and kind of lessons for anybody else that that might be interested really um so we started off with the stalls in the train stations it was all about getting a healthy importantly filling breakfast um you know i it made a real difference to me if i had a, a filling breakfast you know i'd get a lot more out of my mornings and i realized the oats were really good and hence the kind of my oat smoothies um the oat smoothies originally were uh, were great they were a mainstay of our stalls but we also then developed birch muesli and what we called a hodgepodge uh, which was fruit compote yogurt and granola um so we had a really good array of products but all based on oats and then kind of there've been several pivots along the journey. So it's focused on the stalls in the train stations. And then our efforts went on the birch and muesli itself. Um, so oats, yogurt and fruit. It was, a, it was a great breakfast product. And we were kind of the easily the number one player on the UK market. But it's, it's proved to be a bit more niche than I hoped. Um, but that grew really nicely. And um, we pushed that really hard for several years. And then that started to plateau and we changed our focus onto porridge. Uh, and porridge is, was really strong for us for five or six years uh, and is still strong, but is kind of is not growing at the same rate. This last couple of years, we've really focused on oat milk. And oat milk has been great, actually. Last year was was really tough at the beginning of last year um you know went into our porridges started to plateau a bit and then we went into uh covid and our sales really dropped a lot we do a lot into food service um so pubs airlines that sort of thing all of that was zero even our sales into supermarkets that dropped quite a lot because we do a lot of porridge in pots and they're great for people to grab a, grab a quick breakfast on their way to work. Uh, our porridge turnover dropped by 40% last year, actually, so it's really significant. Blimey. But we but we changed to oat milk, and, and oat milk was, was great for us. It, it did really well last year, and then this year, yeah, we'll be in the, about 60% of our turnover this year, so it's uh, it's really changed a lot. Because you've kind of predicted the trend of, of oat milks becoming quite cool and there's so many different players on the market from Oatly to Jord to to to, to um, Outpro how do you compete with such massive businesses it is it's I, I compare oat milk at the moment or plant-based milk at the moment as is the bit of the wild west of plant-based milk um, in that pit companies are chucking all sorts of products out there I think oat is the one to back it's the the milk that is doing best it's kind of it's grown growing way faster than almond and soy and that's kind of based on its taste credentials its functionality and also its sustainability credentials um, but there is quite a lot of variability within oats as well within the, within the quality of the different oat milks and the consumers still quite it's very early days in terms of consumers understanding oat milk uh, and there will be a lot of development over the next five years i'd say so how do we compete with them the first thing is just getting the product right to start with. I think we've got a brilliant product on the marketplace and consumers do notice the difference. 
that's the, that's the most important thing actually kind of for me it's always product first and then brand and marketing second um, because you can spend loads of money on marketing and it, it really does help but unless the product's good it's not going to be sustainable uh, whereas the way we've gone about it is getting the product right first and we've got some really strong sales on the marketplace and then we'll back that up with marketing like a, a bigger marketing push probably going into next year so dialing back the clock to when you did your market research um, and you're in East London, you were handing out these these smoothie pots, you quite quickly realised that there might have been a gap in the market for this. You had quite a good response from those individuals that you picked up the business cards from. It wasn't long until you handed your notice in at Bain & Co. What was their response to you going, thanks very much, guys, I'm off to go and sell smoothies? Um, I've got to say they've always been really supportive and it was one of the things that attracted me to Bain originally was uh, when I was at uni at Cambridge and uh, John Wright from Innocent came round as part of the um, uh, as part of the Bain presentation to grads um, to undergrads and he said you know how he was at Cambridge went to Bain Bain really supported him uh, in his journey gave him a leave of absence to look into the whole Innocent idea before he eventually left his job and that entrepreneurial attitude from corporate company like Bain is really attractive and so they attract more entrepreneurial people with an entrepreneurial mindset I would say um, so yeah they were really supportive uh, actually and um, you know have remained supportive since and what did you do at Bain specifically mainly excel spreadsheets the <laughs> <laughs> no the so I was quite junior obviously and um, they uh, it was, it, was, it was consulting on all sorts of different stuff, but, you know, I'd just be the junior member of the team. So kind of a lot of market research, uh, Excel spreadsheets, putting together PowerPoint presentations. Um, they didn't let me loose on clients too often. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was mainly Excel spreadsheets, which I still pride myself on my Excel spreadsheets. But yeah, <laughs> those, those were we, the main skill I learned. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good skill to have, specifically in this day and age. But looking, looking back, East London market store success, we've heard it all before. I introduced you as the Lord Alan Sugar of the oat world. Now, how did you start your business? You pumped 10 grand in, I think, from your savings account into launching Mama. What was the sort of logic behind literally putting everything you had into getting this business off the ground? What happens if you lost it all? It was, it's funny, you know, kind of it's, um, there's some, some money I'd saved from my time at Bain and it was a bit of a risk. Um, but I think the risk is a lot lower when you're, uh, when you're younger almost. The opportunity cost is lower because you've not got a really well-paid job. You've not got a family. You've not got a mortgage, that sort of thing. So it's a big kind of contradiction or kind of challenge for me as kind of being an entrepreneur is the, the more experienced you are, the more chance you've got of making it work almost. You know, I was I was 26 when I left my old job. Um, you know, I was confident in the idea, and we did it on a although it was 10,000 pounds. You know, it was that was a, a small amount compared to what it would people would typically spend on setting a business up. You know, we we bought a, a filing cabinet from a company in the city. It was a, a wide draw Bisley filing cabinet. We bought a secondhand van from a a guy down in Car Shelton. Uh, it was an old BT van. <laughs> It's really basic stuff. Um, our first branding project cost £2,000 for the whole thing. Um, you know, if we could get marketing and branding done for that these days, it would be amazing. The, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a different ball game now, unfortunately. <laughs> it is. And you say jumping ship back then was slightly easy because you had a lot less to lose. You also had, I suppose, your family supporting you if it did go Pete Tong. For those that have got a job, let's just say, on six figures in the city, in London, and they have a business idea and they want to jump ship, but actually they have got a £150,000 salary to lose and a family to support, what would you say to them? As boring as it is, I think you have to be really, really 
the, the business plan and the idea has to be really solid. Uh, and it's really basic when you when you talk about it afterwards, but people get really lost in it and lost in an idea that they're really passionate about, but they have to kind of, you have to be really super objective about, you know, is this a good product? Will people buy it? Will enough people buy it? Will they pay the price point that I need in order to be able to get a profit and be able to make a sustainable business of this? Don't just get your friends to test the product and all tell you it's brilliant. Um, you know, get some people who are totally impartial to kind of test your products and give you really honest and candid feedback because it's a lot better to have that knock at that stage rather than get two years down having sent, spent hundreds maybe of thousands of pounds on something and then realize actually fundamentally the product's not quite right and you need to pivot and change to do something different and how did you know that you were not as good at the marketing side the branding side the visual side and you were more analytically um sort of favored i suppose how, what made you realize that they used to do this test that um it was, a, it, was a, it was a personality test, a Myers-Briggs test, and it's kind of oh, des- yeah. describing a can of Coke. And all the people who are kind of really analytical describe it as, you know, a cylindrical aluminium can of this diameter or something. Whereas people are more creative, say, you know, it's all about Christmas or imperialism and like kind of corporate power or whatever. I'll just say it's red. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'll be more like me. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, um, so... I think I'm quite creative in terms of um, I think it's really important to let your imagination lead you uh, from an innovation point of view. But in terms of visual design and marketing uh, are not my strong points as much. Our sponsors, Coronation Wealth Management, provide a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. This is how Coronation Wealth helped a co-founder and director in the food and drink sector. Being a new co-founder, Coronation Wealth are helping us to understand what we can do with our business and advising us on business financial planning. Personally, looking at mine and my husband's investments and retirement planning is also a stress reliever. Coronation Wealth Management LLP is an appointed representative of and represents only St. James's Place Wealth Management PLC, which is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority for the purpose of advising solely on the group's wealth management products and services. More details of which are set out on the group's website www.sjp.co.uk forward slash products. So you've had your notice in at Bain, you've realised that the footfall is good enough for you to start this business. You open up essentially your first stall in uh, in Waterloo East, you then go to Vauxhall and you then go to Canary Wharf. It's pretty aggressive growth over the next year or so. How did you build these stands, grow the business and staff it with 10 grand? Uh, it was really hard to start with. It was... Um Honestly, it was like kind of 18 hour days. It was it was really tough. And um, you know, I was down in the kitchen every day as well, as well as uh, selling the products on the stalls. So but yeah, it was it was pretty brutal, actually, um, because we we start work in the kitchens at half past two in the morning. So often I you know, get up at quarter past quarter to two, get down to the kitchens in the van, uh, make the products, deliver them. Um, and I remember I used to, when I get to a traffic lights in the van, I'd have to put the van in neutral. Otherwise I'd nod off at the wheel and start driving along. <laughs> you need, you need to do all the really basic crappy jobs. Uh, and you know, you need to be, you need to learn all those bits and you need to be there doing it. And it's, quite annoying sometimes when people say you know you step back look at the big picture you know just add value that sort of stuff and it's well 
if you can't afford to employ people to do that, do do the do the other jobs, then you need to need to do them all yourself. And you need to be earning enough money to be able to afford all those other things. So there is that pinch point right right at the beginning where you need to be doing everything. This isn't to say that, you know, if you've got the investment and you've got the team around you, then definitely do that. Um, you know, you you don't want to be in that situation of kind of in the thick of it, in the trenches for too long. Um, but but it's it's hard to get out of it sometimes. Uh, I'm not saying there's an easy answer, but it's it, you know it can be challenging. Yeah. So you were doing your 18 hour days. You were obviously delivering this product to location, be it Waterloo East or otherwise. You had a team of people that were working from Vauxhall and from Canary Wharf. How much money did you start to make in the first year, and how did it grow organically? First year, maybe we made. Turn of turnover, probably I think it was a quarter of a million, and then maybe it's even a million pounds in the second year or year three. Year two or year three was 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 a million pounds, so it did grow quickly. I, th- I can't remember the first year we did make a little bit of money, kind of broke bro- broke even, um, made a little bit of money slash broke even, um, and then we did for the first couple of years. After that, we started losing money for probably for set well for seven years actually so it's too long <laughs> the um but, but then we then we started making money yeah so you lost money for seven years how did you keep the business afloat uh we had various investors come on board and uh, invested in the business and that would you know they really liked the the product particularly um and they invested in in me and the team uh as we grew the business um but those the cash that went in was was relatively small really um, and it really kind of kept the business going uh, through those loss making years. So it was really kind of, yeah, t- to keep kind of business as usual going. How much did they invest, Tom? We had about a million pound investment over the years, but over kind of seven years or so, yeah. So you weren't losing that much if it was just a million quid that you needed to find over seven years? Yeah, no. I mean, if I was setting a business up now, I would back myself a lot more and I'd try and raise that million pounds or over a million pounds in one go and really kind of go out to the market and and make it work quickly or fail quickly. Um, whereas what we did then was kind of grow, it's kind of a cross between, it's more towards the organic end of the scale, but kind of propped up by this drip of investment each year, really, to kind of keep things going, yeah. But what we did was really kind of build the brand through the stalls and the train stations, and then we were able to pivot the business from the stalls to the birch muesli, from the birch muesli to the porridge, and then from the porridge to the oat milk. So the last round of investment was really... It's still when Birch Muesli was going really well. Um, so so it wasn't really in... So it's almost like we've had three different businesses, actually. So you mentioned you had a business partner. What kind of stake does your business partner have in the business? Is it 50-50? And you know, how important is it to have someone, a colleague, a business partner, an advisor that you can almost go to off the record and drive together? So they've got uh, about a third of what I've got in the business. I think kind of having those advisors is really, really important. And you can cut you can shortcut a lot of errors in the business by going to somebody and having somebody on board as an advisor, whether they're paid or they have a little bit of equity or something like that. In terms of having a day-to-day business partner, um, a lot of people assume that they should have one, and I did. But I would really caution people to challenge their thinking on that as to whether they think they need a partner or not. Um, Because I think there's a lot of business partnerships that don't really work. Um, You only really hear about the ones that do work, but you don't hear about the ones that don't work. So challenge yourself as to why you need a business partner, what they're bringing and whether your skills complement each other. So the for for me personally, you you know, it didn't really work out, actually, kind of we, we ended up going our own ways. And that's kind of with all respect 
to, to the business partner, but we, we parted company after a couple of years. And in hindsight, yeah, I would challenge whether I needed somebody in the first place um, or whether my money would have been better going just, you know, employing two more people to help me with all that day-to-day stuff that I was talking about to help me get out of the trenches. And in terms of so looking at the branding of, of, of Momor, it hasn't changed vastly over the last sort of 10, 15 years or so. I think the branding's great. Who came up with that? Was it internal? Was it external? How did you develop that in the early days? Um, we had, so the, we've had a few different iterations of it over the years. So there was a guy at the beginning, a guy called David Jenkins, or Jocko as he's known in the, in the design world. He's been around <laughs> quite a few different agencies in London. So he worked as a freelancer for us to start with. And he did the very initial design, which was kind of a Financial Times style uh, branding on the side of the stalls, uh, which was really cool. And I loved it. And then we changed a few times, um, we had two big design projects, one by a company called Pearl Fisher and one by a company called Brand Opus. Um, and the last one was in 2015. So yeah, it's been the same for the last six years. So you're kind of making Hey Whilst the Sun Shines to a certain extent up until 2010. Things are going really well. People know who you are. The brand is is in shops and is recognised. You then discover that you've been diagnosed with MS. You start to lose the sight in one of your eyes. How the hell did you push through such a negative barrier? Oh, firstly, I'm really lucky with my MS. It's you know it's relatively mild, and it's not really you know I've not lost any work because of it. Not kind of had to take any time off work, but it's um, it's uh, obviously it's just like a slightly unpredictable uh, condition. Um, yeah, I suppose I've always been fairly positive. I think you always have to be fairly optimistic as an entrepreneur. But yeah, I've 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 never let it affect me too much and I actually consider you know myself really lucky there's a lot more people in a lot worse situations uh, and I've had you know a very fortunate life generally so um you know it's just one of those just deal with it and do um what you can whether you need to go on some drugs or change your diet or that sort of thing so um yeah no it's been a I suppose I suppose it's a it's a reasonably significant thing in my life but I just kind of get on with it and I don't really let it affect me it, that's incredibly diplomatic and admirable and it's sort of that great British stiff upper lip kind of a- analogy there where you say you know just just crack on there must have been days where you got out of bed and you thought bugger this can't do it not 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 relative not in relation to MS at all the uh, in relation to kind of the business generally yeah there's definitely some tough times you know there's been lots you know if you look at our journey it's been a real roller coaster and I said those pivots from the stalls uh the stalls were great actually and we they they didn't not work. And yeah, there's there's definitely times that you think, crikey, we're working really hard at this. You know, it, it shouldn't be this hard. And um, and that's when kind of the objectivity comes in and you really need to kind of examine what you're doing rationally uh, and look at the bits that are working and where you need to change tack a little bit. Um, but most good entrepreneurs will, you know, they will find a way through, but it won't always be with the product they launch with. And there's several people I know and people that have worked at MoMA and stuff in the past that have gone on and set their own businesses up and it's, you know, not been with the right product, but then they've pivoted and they've done something a little bit different. And, um, you know, the the person themselves will make success, success of things, but it won't necessarily be the thing they set out with. So you realise it might not necessarily work as well as you'd hoped. You pivoted slightly. You obviously had to diversify in terms of releasing new products. Who does your product development and who does the actual the flavour development? Because that's so hard to get right. Yeah, on our porridge, um, 
a woman called Kate. Uh, she's been with us for about six years and she's great. So she started off in sales and marketing and then kind of uh, went on to innovation and marketing. Um, and the porridge is really kitchen development style stuff. You know, it's sitting down there with your oats, your different flavorings, your different fruits, all of that sort of stuff and kind of mixing it up till you've got the right thing. And we put loads of attention into getting the the right balance between the different sorts of oat flakes in there as well. You know, thick oats to give it a proper chunkiness, but the thin oats to give it a slightly creamier flavor and the, the quick cook time. Um, whereas oat milk is very different. It's kind of a more of a sciencey approach. And um, we've got uh, Ryan on board. He always reminds me that he's, he's Dr. Ryan. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's, uh, we're quite rightly so. You know, so he's got his PhD and, in chemistry and he's come on board and he's kind of working on our, our recipes within the oat milk side of things. So it's, yeah, it's a very different approach. It's all kind of uh, you know, water baths and overhead stirrers and, and scales and all that sort of stuff. It's, um, Does he wear a white lab coat? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. White lab, lab coat and, uh, and safety goggles. And um, yeah, no, he's... Uh, it's uh, when I say lab, you know, we've got a, a, a table with um, some bits of equipment on in the back of our office, but it, it works really effectively, actually. And um, yeah, he's, he's excellent. And kind of having somebody on board like that who's really passionate about the product and can and but has got also the academic background uh, behind it is, is really important. So whose idea was it to to partner with the homeless charity and do this innovative idea that was the oat cuisine back in 2018? That was a great idea, but it didn't really go any further than just a, a charitable fundraiser, as far as I can see. Yeah, the oat cuisine. So we had a, um, a pop-up stall or pop-up restaurant in Soho Square, and uh, which was great, actually. It was a... It was a, it was a you know, we, we raised some money for charity and it was a great way of showcasing oats and everything that could be done with oats. We had our eight course tasting menu all made with oats. So everything from kind of peaches with an oat granola to a oat based soup and oat risotto. And you had an oat burger, which is quite something. Yeah, yeah no, it was great, actually. The um, and it was fantastic. Yeah, we loved it. And uh, but it was always a kind of a a one-off campaign and push really um, to kind of uh, just yeah just to highlight what we could do with oats and really to position ourselves and uh, as, as oat experts within the field and that's something that we really push on now you know we're doing oat milk and the fact that we've been doing oats for almost 16 years now uh, and you know gone from birch muesli and have a, a depth of experience and sales on the market in porridge as well I think gives us real credibility within oat milk um, and we back that up by all the all the research we do by having an in-house scientist and kind of just really knowing our stuff um, and oat milk's not as easy as yeah you can't just bang one out on the marketplace you know you really need to understand all the detail behind it and um, and that's where the consumers will become more educated and will understand over time kind of what makes the difference between a good oat milk and a, a not so good one yeah in terms of how important having you know, shelf space in supermarkets is the world has gone ever more online. Arguably, we do often buy our food from, you know, shops that we go to, for instance. Now, have you seen a definite change during the pandemic? Have you seen an uplift in online purchases? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, online's growing a lot faster for us than other channels, um, which is to be expected. But supermarkets is still two thirds of our sales. Um, the other third is not um, all online. It's kind of food service and travel and that sort of stuff. But yeah, the online side is kind of doubling each 
each year, uh, whereas supermarkets is growing, but at a slower rate. And that will continue to, to happen, I think. You know, that, that shift will continue to happen. Um, it's concerning when you've got products on the shelves in retailers because it puts pressure on the retailers and they respond by trying to consolidate their range and basically have a simpler range on shelf, which makes things easier from their point of view, um, which means that there's less brands on shelf ultimately. So um, I don't see the marketplace... I don't see this trend changing, you know, I think people will kind of continue to buy more and more online. So over the last 15 years, you've, you've learned a lot, you clearly know what to do, what not to do. And you, I'm sure you would do things fundamentally differently. Now, if you had to start the business again, what was the one thing, Tom, that you would tell yourself if you had to start it all over again? It comes down to this uh, passion versus objectivity um, message that I said before, it's, it's be really super rational and critical of yourself and objective about your idea early on um, seek external opinions from people uh, make sure that your your product is is a good enough product if it is a good enough product make sure you can produce it at a price that's going to give you a sustainable profit um, which is not always the case you know people will uh, chat to me and you know they've got this amazing product it tastes delicious but it costs the earth and no one's going to pay for it um, so yeah just having that objectivity is really key you know you don't want the objectivity to crush that passion and restrict it but but it needs to be there in tandem with the with with the self-belief and the passion and the confidence you need to have that kind of real rational viewpoint as well and coming from such a you know agricultural and farming background and with your finger on the pulse as much as it is regarding alternative milk is it quite a contagious or contentious i should say subject between the family and and, and your friends from that community with regards to organic milk from cows yeah it can be a little bit the uh, i grew up on a dairy farm actually the um Ooh. yeah the, <laughs> we don't we don't do the dairy anymore but the um uh it's yeah no but back home a lot of kind of family friends and stuff are, d- are dairy farmers but um i've never really had any tricky conversations with them um one with the trickiest conversation has been with one of our investors actually uh who's kind of uh, in the dairy world so hold on there's a dairy investor investing in an alternative milk brand the previous investor so the invest- previous yeah investor. so before we did the um before we did the the uh, the oat milk um but i would say the the, the move towards plant-based is unstoppable really it's gonna it's the trend that's gonna happen and um and it's something i kind of realized a few years ago that you know this was a a nascent trend that was was going to happen and will continue to happen for the next 50 years you know we'd spent the last 13 years building up an oat brand so it made a lot of sense for us to to go into oat milk and really push this hard um so yeah we do i suppose there's been one or two tricky conversations but uh you know we're an oat brand we're not a, a vegan brand um uh, you know, we have dairy in lots of our products as well in our birch muesli and some of our porridge uh but we're really championing the oats the oats has been what we've been about since day one uh and oats make great porridge whether they've got milk in them or they make kind of a great vegan option if if you don't want and you want a purely plant-based product as well um and that's kind of where the oat milk comes in particularly you know as a as a dairy alternative product but we don't look at it really as a dairy alternative product. I think it's and an, the main driver for people moving to plant-based milk, in my view, will be a reduction in greenhouse gases. That's kind of the main issue facing the world at the moment uh, and over the next 10 years. And uh, so, yeah, that will be the reason people move towards plant-based milk and particularly oat milk, I think. Uh- 
And another subject that, that, that is facing the world and a lot of people are talking about at the moment is the impact on mental health that, you know, the pandemic has had, work-life balance in offices. Starting a business up has a huge amount of, uh, of sort of negativity around it because you have to put so much time into fundamentally getting the business off the ground. You put in 18-hour days. How did that impact your mental health in the early stages of the business? I, I remember feeling after four months that I felt like, you know, I'd just been like, beaten for four, for four months and, <laughs> and you desperately needed a bit of a break. But um, mental health wise, um, no, it's, it was it was fine. I think you just kind of need to have those people around you who will support you, make sure you take breaks as well, which I haven't often been as good at. But um, but for me, yeah, have, taking breaks, doing exercise and having those people around you that will support you that you can chat to as well. I think those those are the three things for me that are kind of really important in terms of uh, your health and particularly mm-hmm. your mental health. Yeah. So you've started to take a small step back from Mama. What do you do with the free time that you have now got, apart from maybe catch up on sleep from the expensed hours early on in the business? Well, it's not so much a step back. It's just um, changing my role slightly uh, and kind of having the uh, founder role enables me to, as I say, focus on some of the product development a bit more. So I spent the last two years really heavily invested in in oat milk, um, particularly, and kind of looking at how we can take that forward um, and kind of developing uh, all sorts of stuff around the oat milk um, and then kind of looking for investment in the business, that sort of stuff. So uh, it's just a slightly different role rather than stepping back as much. But what would I like to do? <laughs> the um, Yeah, I think kind of spend, I've always, always liked to invest a bit more time in myself. You know, I'm not as good uh, I've always been like 110% into the business and uh, not enough time, not take not taking enough time for reading and furthering my own development and so on. Um, yeah, that's that's been my kind of weakness that's always there really. So, what does success fundamentally look like for Mama for a business and for yourself, Tom? I think the the, the thing that I makes me really proud about the business is or what makes me really happy about the business is having a team that I really like and are proud of that I like as individuals and we all get on well and they're a friendly team that I think kind of reflect our values as a business um, and but also very really competent at their jobs um, when I get feedback from consumers uh, there's nothing better you know get getting an email or a letter from somebody or going to a trade show and somebody just you know just loving the product you know you can't quite beat that and that's better coming from individuals or from small coffee shop owners than it is from a supermarket buyer. You know, these guys are just super passionate about what they're doing, just as we are. And it's um, it's just really invigorating, actually. We are at our first trade show the other week for two years. And talking to those smaller coffee shop owners just really invigorated me, actually, and kind of gave me a real buzz after kind of two years or 18 months of pandemic. So, um, so that was really good. So, um, so from yeah, from Mama, what does success look like? So yeah, I love that consumer feedback. I love having um, a really good team that I'm proud of that is really effective as well. Um, but then, growing a brand that we're that we're proud of, um, that we really believe in, but also delivers commercially as well. You know, that's a really important element of it. And those are kind of it's a kind of a self sustaining loop. You know, you've got to be be sustainable and profitable as a business to be able to keep reinvesting in the business and creating that thing that you're really proud of that that consumers really want and people buy into and people not only like the product but they can be inspired by the brand as well so that's success for for, for mama from for my point of view no tom i and this you can have this one for free genuinely i love the product i think it's excellent it froths like no other oat milk on the market if i want to go and buy some more where do i go to get mama 
you could go to Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Ocado, uh, Amazon, or our own web shop, or, or Costco, if you live near a Costco. <laughs> well, I'm going to go to the cupboard to make some porridge now. Thanks ever so much for coming on the show, Tom. Great. Thanks very much, Oliver. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more information, check out the description where you can find exclusive video snippets on my YouTube channel, as well as contact details and links. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support as always by subscribing. If you or someone you know should be on the show, please email me via oliver at pinpoint-media.co.uk and I promise I'll get back to you. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Take care. Success in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. This podcast is supported by our media partner, Blocks and PR, who represent some of the most powerful brands within the luxury, lifestyle, and fashion sector. Go and check them out at blocksandpr.com.